Hello everyone and you're very welcome along to the racingnews365.com Formula One podcast. My name is Thomas Marr. Joining me today, we've got editorial director of the Race News 365 group, Dieter Rankin, who comes to us from a hotel room in Dubai. You're very welcome along, Dieter. Thank you, uh, Thomas. Yeah, great to be here again, as always. And we've got Mike Seymour as well, Chief Editor of RacingNews365.com. Welcome along, Mike. Hello, both. Good to be here. Guys, we've got loads to talk about because pre-season testing for the 2022 Formula One season is now over. I'll come to you, Dieter, first for a a general rundown on your thoughts from testing. Uh, We saw some great reliability from pretty much every team in the field. Maybe one or two teams would would argue with that. But uh, your general first impressions of the uh, 2022 regulations. Well, well, first of all, you know, you say um, we had great reliability, given the fact that these are brand new cars in almost every respect apart from obviously the power units, and even there, there have been some upgrades, et cetera. Um, I think the reliability was stupendous. I was talking to Jan Mancho of, of Sauber, technical director for Sauber, who of course run the Alfa Romeo uh, team. And he was saying that their biggest problem was reliability. And he said, you know, let's not forget that you have literally thousands of different components, most of them brand new. I mean, a front wing can ex- can consist of something like 110 different components by the time you've taken the wings and the various winglets and the tooling to make it and the brackets and the screws and the fasteners and whatever. And uh, he said, all it needs is for one of those to go wrong. And, you know, you, you, you grounded, you got to stop. And you've got to find a fix, a cure, whatever. He said that they had a fastener which came loose on the on the engine. And he said it was only a, a simple fastener, the type that they've used plenty of times before. This time it was rooted slightly differently. It was chafing somewhere where they hadn't expected it to. It came loose. And that lost them three hours because they had to drop the engine. They had to drop all sorts of things. So I think overall the reliability was incredible given the um, – the newness of virtually every single component, but still just the smallest niggle could cost them up to three hours when in fact in total all they had was something like 24 hours over the three days. Mike, what, how impressed were you by by how well the teams got the uh, pre-season testing underway without without many issues at all, it seemed? I think that's a great point by Dieter. It could have been a very embarrassing pre-season uh, this time out with all of the changes and some of the comments that we've been hearing in the build-up uh, to those two tests. And obviously, Barcelona being branded a, a shakedown rather than uh, a full pre-season test. So I think that's a great point, And it was really good to see that. Um, lots of teams able to hit the ground running and and get their, their programs going. Um, obviously, Dieter's been out in Barcelona and Bahrain uh, following the, the uh, action track side and making his own observations uh, on my side being remote for both of those tests and with TV footage not available until Bahrain. Um, there was one aspect that really uh, stood out for me and having only seen photos in Barcelona of the cars and then the limited footage sh- shared by teams on their channels and so on um, up to that point, it was the first real chance to see you know the cars running in anger um, with the television footage available. And it was instantly visible just how much heavier the cars are this year, um, or at least how that extra weight is transferred um, to on-track performance. You know, the car's looking pretty sluggish uh, through those slower sections, almost clumsy with the porpoising issues as well, um, to various degrees up and down the grid. 
Um, I know we were talking about this, Thomas, as a team over the three days of testing. Um, but but I do quite miss the days of light nimble cars and drivers really throwing them around. So that was maybe something that um, surprised me slightly, um, as I say, from that situation of being remote for the two tests and not getting that trackside um, uh, yeah, yeah, observation uh, side of things in in Barcelona. Um, but it's interesting to see that um, the differences between the still shots and the TV footage, the impact of the new rules, um, and just how extreme the extreme sorry the porpoising was at times. But hopefully the teams can get on top of all of that. Um, the weight I think is something that needs to be looked at for the future because it can't just keep going up and up. And obviously we had that little increase, extra increase um, confirmed over the Bahrain test as well. Still got to be ratified and, and firmed up but you know we're looking at almost 800 kilograms worth of a car uh, <laughs> as we head into the the first race so no i i enjoyed um following the, the two tests we could make a few initial um pecking order predictions and assumptions but but that element that i just ran through really stood out to me Dieter, how obvious yeah, is the extra weight when when you're standing trackside? Well, it's it's it is obvious. You know, I, I mean, we're talking about cars that with a driver and fuel weigh effectively a ton for a racing car. So obviously, it, it is noticeable. the The biggest issue here is is the the, the weight of safety. You know, you've got a halo that's sort of twelve kilos or fifteen kilos. You're talking all sorts of tethers, you're talking stays, you're talking seat belts, crash structures, add all these together, and we are probably talking in the vicinity of, of 100 kilos, uh, purely to satisfy the various safety requirements of the cars. And, uh, you know, this is uh, where a lot of that comes from. Of course, the engines with the hybrid uh, units and the battery packs and whatever are also very, very heavy. We've gone up on wheels and tires uh, to 18 inches. And again, you know, air weighs a lot less than um, than alloy. So if you're displacing uh, the air inside the tire by going for an 18 into the lower profile, you have a bigger rim, and that of course weighs more than a 13 inch, where the cavity is filled with air. Add that, I, I believe that the total weight of the new rims and tires with the wheel covers is almost 20 kilos more than what it was. Now, again, this sort of adds up, and this is one of the issues. But I think that that ultimately what we do need to accept is that it's the same for everybody. Of course, it doesn't look good. Of course, it's a problem. And, of course, when you have porpoising, for example, you've got a lot more inertia. So you, you're lifting 800 kilos and bouncing 800 kilos, and that bounces a lot longer and further than 600 kilos. Um, you've got uh, longer braking distances because it takes longer to stop the car you've got less acceleration so all in that sort of adds up but i think ultimately the um the gratifying thing about it all is that the teams seem to be getting together they went their, their acts together they went for their glory runs on saturday afternoon it was great to watch and frankly although we had a lot of the um the the weight issues on display during the slower runs when they really opened the the, the throttles on saturday that last hour Man, those cars look pretty, pretty stuck to the ground. 
Well, let's move on to talking about some of the, the most strongly performing teams in Bahrain. Uh, let's start with Mercedes, because, you know, coming to the test, there was a little bit of fear. It was all those rumours about the no side pod W13 showing up. And then, of course, Mercedes rolled out this car that virtually had no side pods. It looked almost melted uh, down from the engine, down to the floor, uh, Dieter. But the uh, the one thing about it was the performance didn't really seem to be there over the three days in Bahrain. How surprised were you that uh, the, the solution hasn't really worked out as of yet for Mercedes? Well, I think there are three different um, elements to it here. And the first one is that it was pretty obvious in uh, Barcelona that the side pods that they had there couldn't work because they just looked too lumpy, too strange. Uh, and the and the airflow would, would have flown in all sorts of peculiar directions. So at the time, um, uh, one of the... the uh, opposition team engineer said to me, there's something strange going on, on underneath the skin there. We did the uh, the livery um, analysis with Peter Stevens, and he said as well that it looked as though the air doesn't know which way to go with that. And in fact, he described those uh, those side pods as looking like three puppies in a, in a silver sack. And so it was pretty clear that there was going to be something going on in that sort of car area. When they, when they did that, I, I wasn't at all surprised that they'd done something, that they'd gone to that extent, did surprise me to a degree. But, of course, I also spoke to Adrian Newey on Friday. And whilst he was noncommittal about that specific uh, area, he wouldn't be drawn into a discussion about the Mercedes. All he did say was that whenever you have something, there is always a compromise. And he said that the designer's job is to ensure that the car has the least amount of compromise. This seemed to be the uh, um, the the overriding attitude towards this with various technical directors I spoke to because I did ask them about that. And they said, yeah, we thought about it. We looked at it. Uh, and there was too much compromise in a certain direction. Obviously, we don't know exactly what Mercedes have done underneath. Well, you don't know what they've done in front in terms of the airflow. Um, but certainly others thought that their car would be less compromised with a more traditional side pot design. And in fact, that's what we saw uh, Red Bull roll out Saturday morning. Mike, Lewis Hamilton and George Russell both played down Mercedes' chances for the start of this season. You know, they're saying they're not really in the running for victories at the start. A second off the pace of Verstappen on the final day on the same soft C5 tyre. Do you think Mercedes might be heading into the first couple of races a little bit worried? I don't want to sit on the fence with it. Uh, it's going to sound like I am, but I think it's it's somewhere in between. Um I don't think they're you know, in a disastrous situation by any means. You know, it's a whole new set of regulations. Every team has to work through little issues, get on top of their their packages. Um, but at the same time, it does appear that you know the porpoising, for example, is more extreme on their car. Um, Hamilton mentioned the temperatures and the wind having a bit more of an effect um, on his car throughout the days running. Uh, so it seems like they've got a bit of homework to do. I think it's, it has been described by their rivals as typical Mercedes um, with some of the comments coming out of their their camp. But um, I think it's somewhere in the middle. Uh, that it's not, as, not a disaster, but I don't think they have the fastest car either. Um, so at the moment, and following Red Bull's late runs on, on Saturday, I think that changed a few 
um, people's minds, especially with Helmut Marco's smiles in the Red Bull garage um, after those laps. I think Red Bull, Ferrari standing out as the two teams for me at the moment that will be challenging for those top four positions on the grid and then maybe Mercedes slotting in behind that. McLaren seem to lose a bit of their momentum with um, the brake issues and so on uh, over the Bahrain test. But just going back to your question, I think it's somewhere in the middle for Mercedes and uh, you, you have to have faith that they can they can work through and turn around any problems that they have. Yeah, Dieter, there was those headline times from Red Bull late on Saturday afternoon after Sergio Perez kind of bedded in the upgrades throughout Saturday morning. Red Bull had been fairly somewhat unspectacular over the course of the first two and a half days, but they really, really ramped it up on Saturday afternoon. Smiles all around at Red Bull by the looks of it. Uh, What do you think is their situation heading into the season opener? Well, obviously, um, they did end up with the fastest car after the six days of testing, three plus three days. Uh, So obviously, they are uh, better equipped to face qualifying on Saturday than the others. Certainly, they are better equipped on paper. That said, uh, I wouldn't discount Mercedes. Yeah, of course, they do have some issues. But in the past, they've also had issues. They had a car called a Diva at one stage. They managed to tame that Diva. Last year, they uh, spoke about issues uh, in Barcelona and, of course, in Bahrain. They were they were good. Uh, so uh, let's not underestimate Mercedes' ability to, to resolve any issues. They have enormous strength and depth when it comes to engineering and technical. So, you know, they, they will find a solution. As far as the porpoising is concerned, one of the, the areas that I found very interesting is that we look at the the three teams that managed to best manage the porpoising, and they were Ferrari and um, uh, Red Bull, and I believe the third one is Alfa Romeo, which was slightly ahead of McLaren by the time you got the final runs. And the interesting thing is that Ferrari, of course, have input from Rory Byrne. We revealed last week that he signed another three-year extension to his contract. Rory was very involved in the original ground effect era and knew all about porpoising. Adrian Newey, although he joined Formula One after the porpoising era, had worked with a lot of people who had experienced it. But above all, He'd worked in IMSA and Lamar cars with March, for example, during that era. So he also knew all about it because, of course, sports cars have got very, very wide side pods and and ground effect underbodies, or they did back in the day. And then the third one is Jan Mancho, who worked for uh, in DTM and worked for Audi when they ran the sports car program. And, of course, they also had an element of ground effects in those cars. And they seem to have best got a grip on this porpoising. Yeah, that, that was actually going to be my next question, just in relation to the, the relevant experience of each team's technical director. Um, but heading on to Ferrari, Dieter, Ferrari looking very, very competent across both tests. How optimistic do you think they are heading into the first race? Well, well I would guess a lot more optimistic than they were this time a year ago. Um, is that enough? I, I don't think anybody is really optimistic. We were talking earlier on about whether Mercedes should be worried. I actually believe that everybody is worried uh, and they should be worried because one just doesn't know what somebody's going to pull out ahead of qualifying, 
One doesn't know what they're going to pull out ahead of the race. One doesn't know what the reliability factors will be like. For example, we don't really know how the cars will react on the on the new tyres. Uh, when it comes to long runs, possibly we have 50, 60 degree uh, track temperatures. So I think everybody right now is worried. I don't think there's room for optimism anywhere on the grid at all. Um, I think that what you may have is a bit more satisfaction somewhere where they know that a certain concept has worked, uh, maybe worked a bit better or not as well, but that it has worked in the sort of direction they'd like it to. And I think that's about the, the best that we can expect from any team at the moment, including Ferrari. Mike, the one thing that was really, really noticeable about Ferrari when they were on the track was just, you know, it looked smooth, it looked consistent. Both drivers, you know, trying to take the attention off themselves by by putting it onto Mercedes a little bit. Um, do you think Ferrari are are sitting on a gold mine here? I think they're looking very good at this stage. I mean, all the the signs are pointing in the right direction. As Dieter said, there are many variables and things that still need to. Um, play out over the course of the the first race weekend and you know engine modes being turned up setups being optimized all of the usual things that will ramp up as the weekend goes on but um just building on what i said earlier i feel like red bull ferrari from all the runs that we saw um across the the tv footage and the, the comments coming out of each camp uh, they, they certainly seem satisfied with what they've done up to this point. Uh, there are a lot of unknowns still, um, but I think plenty of reasons for them to feel uh, encouraged by the preseason. And as we talked about so many times towards the end of last year on this podcast, they really seem to be getting all of those ingredients in place uh, um, to build you know, a race winning or, or title challenging campaign. So if it does turn out that this preseason promise um, develops into uh, the full campaign, that the car is there, it's competitive. Uh, it seems like they've got everything else in place now to capitalise. Um, and, you know, you would, you, know, you could argue that Carlos and Charles um, are right up there in terms of the best driver lineups on the grid. So uh, plenty of reasons to feel positive. But as Dieter was just explaining there, there are still elements that need to come to the surface and, and questions to be to be answered well we've kind of been working on the assumption that it will be mercedes ferrari and red bull at the sharp end of the grid but um up next i suppose it's the kind of the battle of the midfield and especially the upper midfield because there's big question marks over who might slot in there we saw some pretty good times from the likes of alpine we saw some good times from mclaren and we saw good times from haas as well, particularly with Kevin Magnussen and on the uh, second day of testing, going the fastest lap of the day in those uh, extra hours after the, the end of the session. But uh, Dieter, what's your take on uh, Haas's speed at this particular point of the season? Well, as I, as I said last week during the, the individual podcast we had after each day of testing, uh, I wasn't surprised that Haas were right up there when they were running on their own uh, the cooler period of the of the day. So denser air, so more power. There was nobody else on the track. The track was fully rubbered in. And let's not forget, we're talking about a desert circuit, which overnight gets a layer of sand on it. And then gradually the cars work that sort of sand away. And then the track is fully layered in. And the next day, it's back to, to, uh, to sandy again. And that's got to be swept away. So Kevin and, and Mick, who was the second fastest on Saturday, actually, 
if we take his extra running times into account, he was second fastest. So, you know, the Haas was fastest on Friday overall and second fastest on Saturday overall. Am I surprised? No, because they had all these advantages going for them. All it does point to is a far better equipped team than we had a year ago. But will they be worrying Red Bull? Will they be worrying Ferrari? Will they be worrying Mercedes? Well, maybe Mercedes, but I doubt they'll be worrying the, the, the real run front, front runners. Uh, Mike, the same question to you, really, regarding Haas, but also I wanted to ask you about Alpine, because I know you've been kind of beating the Alpine drum for, for the last two months or so. Um, you know, they, they, they kept their, their heads low for the majority of testing, and then right at the very end of the test, Fernando Alonso pops up into third place with the uh, C4 soft tyre, and, you know, it, it looked pretty competitive out there as well. Alonso keeping my hopes alive there. Um, and a reputation, I suppose. <laughs> but no, um, as you say, definitely seems to be some some pace in the car. Um, will they be closer to the front of the field this season compared to last? You'd certainly hope so. Um, I feel like off the track, um, they've been putting the right things in place to build for a successful future. And you, you think of the previous guises of that team, and, and what they've achieved in the past as well. Still many names on board um, and, and the drivers to boot now. Obviously, there was a little bit of a winter reshuffle, some names going out, some names coming in. That's going to take a little bit of time um, in terms of how all of that plays out and if any further change comes. But, you know, the, 22, the 2022 project was a long time coming and I felt like there was... Uh, plenty going for, for Alpine heading into the winter. Um, and then in terms of the, the pre-season testing, it was a tough start in Barcelona, obviously the uh, engine blowout, which was pretty dramatic for Fernando. They lost a lot of running. Uh, it emerged afterwards that they ran the whole week without DRS. Um, so then it was kind of all eyes on Bahrain and um, let's see how they got on get on there. And it definitely seemed like a, a much better test for them in terms of mileage showing a bit more pace you know you had Ocon up there on uh, one of the days and then the final day as you said Thomas with with uh, Alonso pumping in that quick time so uh, so let's see what happens in terms of Alpine but much better end to testing than their start that's for sure uh, Haas I did enjoy the uh, late night Twitter posts from them uh, <laughs> Schumacher and Verstappen one two on the timesheets. We haven't seen that for a few years, um, and, and a great feel good story with uh, Magnussen coming back in as well. And I think that's a much needed boost for Haas after all that's happened. They've been through some really tough times, especially recently. Um, so I think another team where things are going in the right direction now, and obviously they had a. Uh, a year pretty much dedicated to this car, F1's new era. Um, and it seems like a pretty solid package as well. Absolutely. And I'll come back to Kevin Magnussen in, in a couple of minutes time. But Dieter, I just wanted to pick your brains about McLaren because after such a strong test in Barcelona, it all kind of went a little bit wrong in Bahrain for them. I know we touched on this during the uh, special podcast we did during testing, but how much of the issues that they had could be related to the, their change of brake supplier? Um, they tell me not at all. I did follow follow up on that, uh, and they said that any brake issues they have experienced, it would be 
grossly unfair to blame the switch from Akibono, a Japanese brake supplier, to AP, which is one of the Brembo brands. And the team is absolutely adamant that that is not the case. But let's not forget that other teams also had brake issues. Um, Williams had a brake issue. I believe that Alfa Romeo, whilst it wasn't a visible brake issue, were concerned about brakes. I think some of the teams were very concerned. Let's not forget there's almost a standardized brake drum stroke duct assembly, um, which is virtually a standardized part. So that is an issue um, which has possibly created um, uh, the brake problems. We've also got a situation whereby the brakes are more hidden inside the 18-inch rims than they were, say, in the 13-inch rims. And so that's another reason for it. And then, of course, let's not forget, we spoke about the weight earlier on. And every kilo, obviously, adds uh, a brake force, particularly when you're trying to break down from 300 kilometers an hour. So I, I think that ultimately the teams will sort out the brake issues. We also, on the day where most teams have brake problems, we had 33, 34 degree ambient temperatures. We had well over 50 degree track temperatures. So I think that's more, that was really the, the main reason for it. Of course, it hampered McLaren. It also hampered uh, Williams, who had a, a visible brake problem with a brake fire, in fact. But ultimately, I do believe that they'll be able to resolve the issue. The, the, the biggest problem for McLaren was, of course, that it ate into their running time. But equally, let's not forget that um, they also didn't have Danny Ricciardo running because he had COVID. Yeah, and Mike, that was actually quite the workload on Lando Norris to be given those three days. And had they had a, a kind of uninterrupted run, it would have been a mammoth workload on Norris. But how much do you think McLaren might suffer as a result of losing out on that track time? It's far from ideal, um, that second test. I mean, if you look back to Barcelona, you would say Ferrari and McLaren were the, the winners of that test. You know, the two teams that um, looked like they really hit the ground running and, and got stuck into their programme. So a bit of a shock to the system in Bahrain for McLaren. Um, those brake issues and then compounded by um, Ricardo falling ill. Um, thankfully, it looks as though he should be able to return um, for the season opener. That would have been gutting of him otherwise. Um, but no, far from ideal. Uh, I think it's taken away some of that early momentum that they, they built up um, and makes it a little bit more difficult to slot them into the anticipated pecking order now. Um, so behind Red Bull, Ferrari, and that's me, um, putting those two out there up front. Is it going to be McLaren next? Uh, or will it be Mercedes slotting in? Or you know, has one of the other midfield teams uh, caught up? Can they capitalise on that? That, that poor week for McLaren um, as we go into this weekend's race. So I think uh, it's a very intriguing situation in, in the midfield in particular and which teams will um, kind of jump forward and, and claim that, that best of the rest position. And Mike, I, I know we spoke yesterday about, um, you know, surprising headlines that we weren't expecting to write over the course of pre-season testing. And one of those was that Magnussen goes quickest for Haas on uh, on day two. But um, on Kevin's return after a year and, you know, three, four months away from the sport, um, do you think it's the right call for Haas to replace the ousted Nikita Mazepin with, with Magnussen? He's a great fit isn't he? I mean, he knows the team well. They know him. 
Um, he is that known quantity, but he's also a driver who I feel really deserved more from his F1 career. You know, you think back to his first race finishing on the podium in that McLaren. Um, the season as a whole was a bit more demanding and lots of him to get to grips with, but he's certainly got pace and potential. Um, had a bit of moving around uh, as his career developed and then he really seemed to find his home at, at Haas and yeah, we all know the financial struggles that that team went through and, and they had to take a different direction and unfortunately Kevin was one of the, the victims of that um, heading into 2021 but things move quickly in Formula 1 and um, although unexpected uh, surprises uh, they do happen and I'm really really pleased to see Kevin come back and get another opportunity and in what should be uh, you know at the very least a car that's um, able to push on much more than last season and potentially challenge for points Um, and and he's back where he deserves to be in, in my view I mean I remember he was the first driver that I interviewed um, as a journalist back in the British Formula 3 days and I remember an almighty scrap with him and Felipe Nazar during that season um, and you know one of the guys back then that he, he would pick out uh, as a future F1 race winner potentially world champion um, didn't quite happen for him um, or hasn't quite happened for him up to this point but to get that second third chance whatever it is now and hopefully as I say in a a more competitive pass. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how he gets on. Dieter, is he the right man to slot in beside Mick Schumacher? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I made that point very, very clear on, on Thursday evening uh, during the, the, um, the podcast we did on the at the end of the first day's testing that I don't believe that Gunter and Gene Haas could have found a better fit for the team in the situation it is right now. And it's really, really boosted, I think, Haas's popularity with fans as well in, in the run-up to the new season. Well, with all due respect, I think from a popularity perspective, um, they were rather hampered by Nikita Mazepin's presence. So, you know, I think anything would have been an improvement from from a popularity perspective. Well, Dieter, moving on to talking about the um, Russian Grand Prix, which is cancelled for the foreseeable future. What's the latest you've heard, Dieter, regarding a possible replacement for the uh, Sochi round? Uh, Thomas, I I had originally heard that it would be one of the Middle East circuits, either Qatar, possibly Bahrain, uh, potentially the outer circuit in Bahrain. But the, the indicators were that they would be running somewhere in the Middle East, because let's not forget, we're coming off the... Italian Grand Prix, then we have the Russian Grand Prix weekend, and then we go to Singapore. So they would ideally be seeking a circuit which would be between Italy and uh, Singapore by whatever air routing, but that sort of direction rather than going west. And so I'd heard a Middle Eastern circuit. However, talking to Sheikh Mohammed of the, the royal family the other day, um, I said to him, you know, if the race comes here, we'd be looking at the outer circuit, uh, the, the normal circuit. And he said, you can't race here in September. He said, it's just far too hot, far too humid. And I said, what about a night race? And he said the same. He said, it's, it's, it would be unbearable for the drivers. And let's not forget that Qatar had to move the, the Football World Cup 
for for that reason that they weren't able to play in the in the heat of summer etc and although obviously september is moving out of summer it is still very very hot here i've been here in the past and it's very hot so i don't think we'll be looking at that could we go to malaysia potentially yes uh, it's right next to Singapore, of course. We have had a race in Malaysia in September, early October. Uh, could we go to Turkey? Well, I believe that logistically, yes, absolutely. But I believe that the fiscal demands of Formula One are right out of the Turkish ballpark. You know, I'm sort of hearing a gap of about 40 million between what the Turks would be prepared to pay and what Formula One would want for a race. So at this stage, it's very, very difficult to to decide. We could end up going to Portimao, but again, there's a fiscal question. I don't know. If you ask me right now, I would probably say that the circuit that could pay, the circuit that is uh, sort of in the logistics uh, route would be Malaysia. But that is a long shot on my part, frankly. Well, if Sepang does return, I think it'll be a very, very popular decision. I think that's one of the tracks that probably does deserve to be on the calendar. It's a great track. Um, but Dieter, I know you're coming to us today from Dubai in between the, the Bahrain Test and the Bahrain Grand Prix uh, at the Dubai Expo today. And I suppose that the headline story that we've heard from from the Expo so far today is uh, Lewis Hamilton's appear, appearance for Patronus, in which he revealed that he's going to be changing his surname. Uh, what did you make of that particular little bombshell from him? Um, well, I mean, Lewis has always been one who's spoken about equal opportunities, etc. And he said that he f- finds it a bit strange that um, the woman loses her, her surname when she gets married. And he'd like to incorporate that in a surname. We do see more and more people using both names of the parents. Um, you know, I'm, I'm half Belgian, so I'm dual national. But in Belgium, for example... Um, it's not traditional for the woman to take on the, the man's surname at all when they get married. And in fact, you sort of go and look at the post boxes and most of them have got two names there. The kid then takes the name of the father generally. Um, but when that kid gets married, that kid will keep its name uh, regardless. And if it's, if it's a boy, obviously he'll keep his name. If it's a girl, she'll still keep her name, even if she marries uh, and, and her her husband then has another name. And that is – so it's not unusual in global terms. And, you know, I think all Lewis is doing here is is honouring the mother's uh, name and part of the family in his global success. And uh, are you able to reveal any more of what you're getting up to at the uh, Dubai Expo, Dieter? Well, I was there today. It was very, very interesting. Um, as always, I've been to a few expos in the past. Uh, was there anything motor racing-wise? You know, we just discussed the Lewis thing. In one of the uh, pavilions, I saw a, a model of the uh, last year's Mercedes. I believe it was there because of a, a team sponsor was also sponsoring that particular pavilion. It was actually the Baden-Württemberg pavilion, so the German uh, one of the German provinces. They had their own pavilion there, and, and there this car was. When I first saw it, I thought it was as a result of the Mercedes connection to Stuttgart, which is also in that province. Um, But then I saw that it was uh, alongside all sorts of uh, team viewer uh, material. So I'm imagining that uh, with team viewer being a Mercedes sponsor, this one eight scale model was there as a result of that. But for the rest, there was absolutely no Formula One activity whatsoever, nothing. But again, that's not unexpected. Let's not forget. 
Dubai is far removed from, from Bahrain. It's a completely separate country. It may be in the same region, but it's a completely separate country and doesn't even have a Grand Prix of its own because a Grand Prix in the UAE, of course, is in Abu Dhabi. Well, let's talk about this weekend. We're um, staying on in Bahrain for the season opener at the Sakir Circuit. But uh, Mike, I'll come to you first because I want you to keep this nice and short and sweet for me and give me a couple of predictions this week. Mostly just in terms of who do you think is going to be at the top? Who's going to win? Who's going to take pole? Uh, give, give me your top three. Okay, so top three qualifying on the grid? Yes, we'll go qualifying first. Okay, so I'm going to stick my neck out and go for a Charles Leclerc Ferrari pole position um, with Max Verstappen and Red Bull P2. And then I'll put the other Ferrari of Carlos Sainz in third. Okay. Dieter, what's your take on qualifying? I'm going to go with Max and then I'm going to go with George. And then I'll go with uh, Charles Leclerc. An interesting one. And Mike, who's going to win the Grand Prix? I'll say a victory for the world champion in the first race for the number one. So Max Verstappen. To overcome both of the Ferraris on the, on the day. Yeah, we're in for a scrap. <laughs> right. Okay. And Dieter, your, your call? I reckon it's going to be Max. He's on a roll. I mean, he really is pumped up. He's got a um, an inner confidence, which is just so obvious. Uh, um, and, you know, he's achieved his, his goal. They always say that the second one is easier than the first one. So I, I really believe it, it could be Max. Is this the start of the Verstappen era, Dieter? I don't think we could um, categorize it as a Verstappen era. Uh, you know, we speak about the Hamilton era, but I think the difference then was that obviously there was a major, major, major car advantage. And um, I don't believe that any team will have the same sort of car advantage going forward because of the new regulations. That's why they were introduced. Uh, testing proved that they've done their job to a very large degree. And so I don't think we will have a driver era going forward, I think we will probably have a lot more mix and match. And of course, Dieter, this weekend we possibly get to hear the results as well. Well, we we do get to hear the results of the uh, report, of the FIA report into the Abu Dhabi race from the end of 2021. What's your expected outcome from this? Well, I think it goes beyond that, Thomas. Uh, first of all, it's the, the first full-on World Motorsport Council meeting chaired by the incoming president, Mohammed bin Salayam, um, who, of course, was voted or elected FIA president in December last year. And he has pledged to publish the uh, the results of this. I'm hearing we may not get the full result for some reason. And I would like to apologize to our readers in advance if they don't, because I believe that everybody is due the full unabridged um, uh, uh, report on what happened in Abu Dhabi. I think it's something that is owed to the fans, and I sincerely hope that we do get it. But I am hearing that there is a, a chance that we'll probably just get a pricey of it. Uh, for the rest, there are obviously regulation changes that have got to be approved. The weight uh, increase that Mike spoke about earlier on. There are a couple of others. I believe they may be looking at changing the um, the regulations regarding mirrors. So the mirrors are less space age and less aerodynamic. 
So there'll be a there'll, there'll be a pretty full agenda on on Friday. But the main thing is this report, and all I can hope for is that it is the complete report, completely unabridged. Dieter Rankin, editorial director of the Racing News 365 Group. Thank you very much, as always, uh, for your contributions to the uh, Racing News 365 podcast. And looking forward to this weekend. Absolutely. And looking forward to the next podcast next week. Absolutely. And you can follow Dieter on Twitter at Racing Lines. Mike Seymour as well, chief editor of RacingNews365.com. Thanks very much for your contributions to the podcast. Thanks, Thomas. And thanks to you both for the great updates over the course of pre-season testing as well. I enjoyed listening to those. Yep, cheers. And you can follow Mike on Twitter as well at Mike Seymour F1. My name is Thomas Marr. You can follow me on Twitter at Thomas Marr on F1. That's it for the Racing News 365 podcast until after the season opener. It's back already. Formula One this weekend in Bahrain. And we'll talk to you next week.